VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, May the 18th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Today is a great day for you to join us live on the air to talk about a topic of your choosing. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26 so friendly reminder get your growlers tickets before they're gone and of course we all know the story now where the growlers came back from a 3-1 deficit to beat the reading royals last two games on the road extraordinary accomplishment uh friday night a uh, puck drop seven o'clock at the mary brown center should be a great series against the florida everblades i don't know what's going to stop the growlers now from winning another kelly cup but if you want to get your ticket you better go get one soon i think i stick with the hockey a check-in over in Finland, uh, Team Canada at the Men's World's Ice Hockey Championships. They're 3-0. Cruising along pretty good. Beat Slovakia yesterday 3-1. Next up is Kazakhstan. And Bay Roberts Dawson Mercer has three assists in the three games. So continue good luck. Let's stick with Finland. Joel Kratz from Labrador City. He's playing with Team Canada at the World Junior Curling Championships, also in Finland. They're 2-3. and three. They've got to probably win out to secure a playoff spot, but Joel is the voice skip of that particular team, so good luck. Go get him. And last night, uh, Canada's Got Talent, Kelly Loader. I've associated Kelly's birthplace with Badger, Botwood, <laughs> a bunch of different towns. It's Badger. So Kelly Loader came second. But I tell you why, she made a major splash, splash on the music scene, so I think the future is extremely bright for Kelly Loader. Good effort. Okay. Mount St. Helens. Let's go now to Washington in the United States, the state of Washington, in Skaminia County. Mount St. Helens is named after British diplomat Lord St. Helens. He was a friend of explorer George Vancouver, who surveyed the area in the late 18th century. That particular volcano is part of the Cascade Volcanic Arc, or also referred to as a segment of the Pacific Ring of Fire. But it was today in 1980 where Mount St. Helens erupted. It's one of the deadliest, most economically destructive volcanic events in U.S. history. 57 people were killed, 200 homes, 47 bridges, 15 miles of railways, 185 miles of highway were destroyed. It actually blew the top right off the mountain. So after that, it continued with uh, volcanic events all the way until 2008, but it was today in history that Mount St. Helens erupted 1980. Wow, I can remember quite clearly. Also today in history in 2012, Facebook held its initial public offering, raised $16 billion that day. There's about 2 billion people worldwide use Facebook. And, of course, the man at the helm, the founder, chairman, and CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, his net worth is around $73 billion-ish. You know, it becomes one of the tricky conversations here. Social media has had a lot of upside attached to it. But there's also serious problems with social media. Now, we all want to be free to say what we think when we want. And, of course, there are limits to freedom of expression and limits to freedom of speech. There's a variety of areas where it steps out of bounds. But, you know, can it legitimately, pragmatically be regulated to some point where there's some actual controls? I know everyone signs a terms of service to use, whether it be Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or whatever else. But it's getting away from us. So what went from, you know, meeting up with old friends who live far away and sharing pictures and tales and stories? All really great. 
but it has turned into something that is just not that great. So I don't know how we handle it. And of course, it's a controversial bill being proposed by the federal liberals about regulating online content. Brings up some very, very serious questions. But something has to give. Technology and social media has outpaced regulations and legislation. And at this moment, I think we're all worse off for it until some sort of controls. And I don't know how that looks until something is done about these platforms. Anywho. So the Royal Tour has come and gone. I didn't go and have a look uh, at the royals. Some people were quite excited to see Prince Charles and the Duchess of Cornwall, Camilla. And if you did and you enjoyed it, you're welcome to share your tales here and any conversation. We still don't know what the price tag associated with the tour, but. So also on hand was not only Lieutenant Governor Judy Foote and her consort, uh, the Governor General candidate, Mary Simon, and of course the mayor and a variety of members of parliament and the prime minister. So there was, you know, I guess this news story yesterday went something like this. The Prime Minister would have 30 minutes of FaceTime with Premier Andrew Fury. Now, of course, inside of 30 minutes, it's pretty difficult to discuss anything of substance or have some substantive conversations. And they'll say that the discussion was around cost of living, uh, healthcare transfer dollars, the pathway to $10 a day daycare. Okay. And I don't know what became of it. But some interesting things that, you know, we now know that the province has struck this 2041 panel to look at the implications of the contract expiring on the Upper Churchill in 2041. Some things that have been kicked about, and actually conservatives have said over the years, particularly Andrew Scheer a couple of leaders ago, that an east-west grid without the provincial barriers put in place and the hierarchical battle that we have to entertain to see the flow of power going from east to west, west to east. So just imagine the upside for us in this province if that was established by the time 2041 came around. It makes some of the panels work a little bit more complicated, not knowing what the landscape will look like. But just imagine if we could achieve that. And what it would mean for the federal government's plan, the Atlantic Loop, and their continued due diligence, even though it was their plan that they announced, all these things become much more easy and better for all. And then there's something that we don't discuss anymore. Well, maybe we'll discuss it today. It's the concept of the, all the barriers, the trade barriers in this country, interprovincial trade barriers. It's been looked at, talking about liberalizing the trade barriers over the years, but it costs Canadians huge sums of money. If they were removed, it's an equivalent of in and around 7% of a tariff. Now, there's been some move made, but very little. You know, the ability to transfer or transport a couple of boxes of beer over provincial borders. Not really what we need. If the trade barriers were removed, it would see an increase to the economy of somewhere in the neighborhood of some people say $80 billion, all the way to $110 or $20 billion. Jack up national GDP by 38 to 4.2%. Just imagine all of the ways that the roadblocks are put in place. And we know why provinces want to protect their own, protect their own industries and their own distilleries and all the other manufacturing they do. But come on. Just imagine just that one move and what it would mean for the national economy. And it'd be good for us, too. So that's something I know that never gets discussed very well. It certainly doesn't get discussed on this program very often. There was a one fellow or two fellows uh, some years back that used to like to bring it up. And I think it's a really important topic. Just look at what the economic upside would be. So I'm sure that wasn't on the table. And sticking with healthcare and the healthcare transfer dollars. We know that healthcare in this province is struggling. 
And I think the same, even people don't want to hear what else is happening around the country for context, but I think all the provinces are looking not only for an increase in healthcare transfer dollars, but now some of the national entities, the Canadian Medical Association, the Canadian Nurses Association, the College of Family Physicians of Canada, they have all made presentations to the federal government regarding staffing shortages and other issues. You know, included in there is a national standard for accreditations. You know, why should it be different to be accredited as a healthcare professional with the same training from the same universities, regardless if you wanted to practice in British Columbia or in Newfoundland or Labrador. Like, why is that? We've actually heard from doctors on this program that said they'd be more than happy to come to Newfoundland and Labrador, even if we're just talking about a locum. But because of all the paperwork and time and costliness of it, that they just won't do it. So we would certainly have a leg up in our ability to attract healthcare professionals to the province if there wasn't a big issue regarding their license and, or accreditation. So they're talking about issues like the expansion and focus on virtual care, which I think is going to be a big part of healthcare delivery in the country, training, data collection, a long-term Canadian mental health plan. So it looks like all of these national entities are making presentations, I guess, on, our, on all of our behalf, and maybe some good can come of it. But of course, the immediate focus will be on healthcare transfer dollars. You want to talk about that kind of stuff? We can do it. Also, sticking with healthcare, the pharmacists now were able to assess, prescribe, and dispense Paxlovid, the oral antiviral for COVID 19. So that's a very good move because, you know, there was at the onset you needed to travel to see an infectious disease specialist that moved into you could just see your GP, which has now moved into more access points with the province's pharmacists. There was the last uh, number I saw where there was 128 courses of Paxlovid administered and zero of those people became severely ill and required hospitalization. So there's a bunch of different eligibility requirements that are part of this program. If you have tested positive for COVID or you're symptomatic for COVID, please don't go to the pharmacy. Call and book an appointment. The assessment can be done over the phone. You have to catch it within the first five days of the onset of symptoms. And there's a variety of other issues for eligibility, but you can discuss those because there's a bunch of them with your pharmacist. But that, that just makes sense to spread around the access points to make it easier on people who may indeed qualify for this particular oral antiviral. Okay. So it looks like people are more and more willing and wanting to travel via air. And we can get into, you know, what the May 24th weekend looks like and your plans that might have been upended because of the price of fuels. But let's stick with the airports for a second. So there's staffing issues at customs. The wait time to even disembark the aircraft, especially at some of the larger airports like Pearson. There's a story where one fellow was on the tarmac for two hours waiting to be let off the plane. If you have a connection, they'll let you off in a more timely fashion. But then it's the long lineups at Customs in particular. So random testing and public health questions and all of those things, even when your final destination in the country may not have any of these requirements for filling out questionnaires or travel documents or the need to be tested any of these things so we've got just enormous troubles at the airport some of the lineups at customs can take upwards of two hours so you've been sitting on the tarmac for a couple another a couple of hours inside the terminal waiting your turn some of these things can just go away some of the folks in the tourism business say that it may indeed uh, look like canada is not open for business when you hear these types of stories so where the right idea lands whether it be for the canadian border services agency 
and the Air Canadian Airport Council, they'd like to see some easing so that the airports can be a little bit more efficient and less an arduous task for the travelling public. So it looks like a big issue. If you are planning on travelling, be ready to face some of these unbelievable, extraordinary waits. So anyway, that's not good. Now, there was one portion of this story that's been floating around that the federal government had told the airlines to reduce the number of flights to ease up the congestion in the airports. The uh, airlines say that didn't happen, and the federal government says that didn't happen either. So, you know, just one of those other issues where the falsehoods can travel quite quickly and the truth lags well behind. Anyway, if you're planning on travel in the airports, you know what to do. Okay, so what does this say? So they'll stick with travel, I suppose. So the price of gas, of course, went up 10.9 cents yesterday. There's another move coming from the PUB, the standard Wednesday adjustment for Thursday prices. Doesn't look like there's a whole lot going to happen on that front. Well, so says Dan McTeague, anyway. And the opposition parties, they're pledging to do everything they can to keep the House of Assembly open and keep the government's feet to the fire, to look for some relief for all of us at the pump. What that might look like, I don't know. But I don't know of anybody who doesn't think that it's just getting completely out of hand and no end in sight. An interesting point that, uh, once again, a listener brought up uh, via email that I mentioned yesterday is there used to be a huge disparity between the price of gas uh, in different parts of the province. Not so much anymore. Pretty level playing field. Only about two, three cents in the difference, regardless of where you look on the island in particular. So that's still on the table. Uh, the Transportation Safety Board this morning is releasing a report into the tragic loss of four men aboard the Sarah Ann that sank in May of 2020. So they immediately launched an investigation into the incident, and we will indeed, VOC will be there at the Alt Hotel in downtown St. John's to see and hear what that report entails. And we all know the merciless nature of the North Atlantic and the dangers associated with the fishery and anything fishery-related we can do. All right, I read this story today, and it's really quite something. You know, we've given out the friendly reminder that the motorcycles are back out on the streets, so beware. And more and more children now breaking out their bicycles. Or I guess everyone breaking out their bicycles. And it's been conducive for bicycling for a while now. But more and more will happen as the weather warms up a little bit. And this story here is about a fellow who, at 15 years of age, he's now 27, Taylor Jackson. It's really quite a tale. So Dr. Paul Pady was in an ambulance with Taylor after he'd struck his head riding his bicycle without his helmet on. Dr. Pady had borrowed a drill from the maintenance man at the William H. Newhook Community Health Care Center in Whitburn, and they were, of course, racing to St. John's. He badly needed to have some blood drained from his recently injured brain. And so Dr. Pady tells the paramedics, pull over. He's got to drill into the young man's skull to relieve some of the pressure, and he did. And Mr. Jackson lived to tell the tale. He's bringing this story back out because he sees in his community in Marystown so many young people in particular, he says, not wearing their helmets, riding their bicycles. You know, for some people, it might, you might just not remember to do it. And even if you put on your helmet that doesn't fit properly or you don't do up the chin strap, you're not doing yourself much good. Some people might think it's not cool to wear a helmet. Well, it's certainly not cool to suffer the serious accident and injury that Mr. Jackson did. Had to learn, relearn to walk and to talk. And I mean, just an extraordinary story. But just imagine being the doctor with the borrowed hand drill and drilling into Jackson's brain to save his life. And so the reminder is that Mr. Jackson doesn't want you to go through what he had to go through and the long road to recovery, of which he's on. He's got a couple of children now, a couple of boys, Roman and Carter. Say good morning to all of the Jackson family. And his story is hopefully a reminder for you 
to put on your helmet and to remind your children in particular and your adult buddies and your wife or your husband or your partner or your buddy to put on their helmet. That's really some story. All right, how are we doing on the telephone there, Dave? Let's get it rolling here today, folks. Let's go. Okay, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Tunage coming up. All right, in 1959, cracking the top 10, moving up from 16 to 6 was Bobby Darren, Dream Lover. When we come back, I don't want to dream alone or talk alone. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Good morning, Jen. You're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Uh, Thank you for starting your day with me. Pleasure. Um, Yeah. Um, So yesterday we found out that uh, Paxlovid is now available in community pharmacies. And as you know, uh, myself and my family have just been through sort of the saga of uh, trying to get my dad on it last month. Um, So I'm really, really, really glad to hear this information. Um, I actually got a call about it, which was fantastic. And I think that um, it's a game changer for uh, people outside of St. John's. And for anybody who gets uh, the disease, because, of course, Paxlovid has a, like a five-day window, right, to, to get you on it. So the way that things were, you had to test positive. You had to get an appointment with your doctor. <laughs> you had to have your doctor send in the authorization. The authorization went to one pharmacy in the whole province. And then they had to get it out to you. So as you can imagine, that's a bit of a clock ticking for a lot of people. Um, and I, I just think it's incredible, this development, that they can just uh, call your pharmacist now and that your pharmacist can prescribe it and take you through the assessment. It's just, I think, another clear example of if we allowed healthcare professionals to do exactly what they're trained to do, then we'd ease the, the worry or the strain or the backlog on other healthcare professionals. This is a great example of it. So, and you're right, uh, access points are just so critically important here. At the beginning, it was very strict. You had to go all the way to St. John's, then it changed by the time you and your family fought for your father, Rod, to get his course of Paxlovid. So now that this is the way it is. I still don't know. I'm a little bit confused, and I misspoke earlier when I said 128 courses have been administered when it's 148, and all 148 have been able to stay out of the hospital. There was initially some 500 courses received in the province when the uh, pr- when the drug was approved, then another 300 mid-March. So we've got some courses on hand, and if it's been as helpful as it has been at this moment in time, just opening up a different access point makes all the sense in the world, and I'm glad that they did it because making things difficult just makes things worse. Well, I think you, um, you picked up on what I think is really big news beyond um, this particular drug, is that it's scope of practice they talk about, right, in our healthcare system. Mm-hmm. So for pharmacists, they have been advocating for a long time saying, listen, we can do more to help the burden on the healthcare system. And this is groundbreaking. This is the first, um, you know, Schedule One or whatever they call it, drug that pharmacists have the autonomy to prescribe themselves. So that is the first time in our province's history that they can do that. And it's something they've been asking for for a long time. So the demonstrated uh, ability for them to do this hopefully is going to lead. I mean, just think of how many refills and uh, ordinary prescriptions 
that uh, we call our doctor and it's like, yeah, yeah, no changes. Can I just get a refill? If you could go to your pharmacist for that, I mean, just think of the savings on the healthcare system in terms of accessing our primary healthcare provider. So that's one thing. And the other thing, which is huge to celebrate, is that we are only the second province in Canada to empower the pharmacists to deliver Paxlovid. So we've gone, in my mind, and again, I am just a layperson uh, who has been self-informed, uh, but we've gone from sort of being behind the curve on uh, packs of Lovid delivery to being ahead of it. You know, we are now one of the best places in the country to be able to access this drug. And the fact that it's still free, um, somebody asked that on Twitter yesterday, and I wasn't sure if this change meant you know, going into community, does this mean people have to pay for it or go through their insurance? And no, the government is still sponsoring it. Mm-hmm. I know I sound like I'm speaking for government, but the government is, is, is still sponsoring this drug because they know the savings. I mean, for every single patient that stays out of hospital with COVID, you can only imagine um, the economic, let alone ethical, um, gains on that. Well, the, I use this, this example all the time. It's uh, Cara O'Keefe. She's the pharmacist on Bell Island. This was some while back. She tweeted out that she has a client or a patient, customer, who had to go to emergency three times for GP twice to take care of what was simply something that Cara O'Keefe has the training, the education, the experience, and the license yep. to do. It could have taken 10 minutes, but then it took five trips to those aforementioned ERs and GPs. So none of that makes any sense. I know there's a territorial issue here and people want to you know put their stake in the ground and protect their revenue streams and I I think that's part of it I get condemned by some doctors in particular when I say that but it's got to be part of the equation if everyone can do what they're able to do we would all be better off we'd ease up some of those burdens with you know lack of uh, family doctors for so many and 12-hour waits at the ER and up and down the line Anyway, yeah, I just wanted to highlight that because I think that is a part of the story as well. Sure. And just hopefully have it out there that everybody, and now across the province now, you can call your pharmacist if you think you have COVID. And they made some, panel made some great points about that. Um, but the criteria is still the same, of course. Like, it's not everybody that can get uh, Paxlovid. But they really, they changed it after, um, they changed it uh, a few weeks ago, and they opened it up much broader than when my dad had to go through it. So now anyone 80 and above, anyone, no matter where you live, no matter what your vaccination status, if you're 80 and above and you think you have COVID, now your first step can be to call your pharmacist because not only are they going to assess you for Paxlovid, but they're going to provide you with um, a rapid test for free. Right? Yeah, so. part of the assessment process. And the other age uh, issue is if you're 60 years of age or older, regardless of your vaccination status, if you live in rural remote communities, you're a resident of a long-term care setting, uh, members of indigenous communities, you can also be eligible for Paxlova. Just to throw that additional detail out there. And that's exactly where I was going next. We're oh. a great team, Patty. So that's <laughs> perfect. Yeah. So I'm, no, it's really good because I think uh, it, it really needs to be shouted from the rooftops because we've we know we've just lost too many and uh and this is a game changer so thanks for giving me the time to to help uh, chat about it a little bit more happy to have you on jen how's how's dad oh my gosh uh dad you know recovered quicker than anybody in the house like it was insane like i we looked at him we were like did you even need the paxlovid <laughs> you know, he was like oh they talk about the covid it's not too bad 
but I think that's just, you know, you get to 100, he must have some kind of crazy natural immunity anyway. Uh, my mom uh, also went on Paxlovid a couple days later, and um, which was much sicker, but, like, it did not have to go to hospital. Like, it was, we all recovered well, thank God. So um, I really do credit that um, for, for helping us through it all. Well, I'm glad to hear that great news. And, of course, he must have a strong constitution to live the life he's led. So good stuff. Say hello to your mother or father for me. Thank you so much, Patty. Have a lovely day. You too, Jen. Bye-bye. All right, there we go. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, yesterday I mentioned the fact that, unlike other provinces, if you are a driver instructor or in a driving instructing company here in this province, you may find yourself with the only opportunity to get insurance in the Facility Association. Just like 90% of cab drivers, you know they're considered uninsurable or very high risk, as opposed to driving instructors who would think are amongst the safest vehicles and drivers on the road, they're falling into facility insurance. Josh is a driving instruction uh, driver instructor, and he wants to talk about that issue right after this. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number three. Good morning, Josh. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing this morning? Great today. Thank you. How about you? Not bad. I just wanted to uh, give you a quick call here this morning to discuss. I'm not sure if you happened to catch the CBC interview that we did last week with Anthony Germain talking about uh, the driving instructor rates here in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. But I just wanted to raise a little bit of awareness on that topic and kind of have a quick chat with you just to kind of get some information out there for the public so that they can kind of understand our stance in this matter. Sure. So, um, uh, like, I know that you referenced it there just before the break, but as a driving school, we are clumped in to what's called facility association insurance, which essentially, for just as a quick recap, is a high-risk insurance market. They actually market themselves on their website as the insurer of last resort. So if you have a lot of traffic violations or a high collision record, or if you've received an impaired charge or some, something to that degree, then in order for you to get insured on a motor vehicle, you're going to have to seek out facility services just so that you can operate the motor vehicle legally. Now, the problem that myself and my colleague, Mr. Price from Smart Driver Training, have with this is we are lumped into that category which really doesn't make any sense when you consider that my company, along with other driving schools here in the local St. John's metro region, are providing a valuable service to the public on how to mitigate and avoid collisions. So we, we kind of get penalized by the same collisions that we're trying to teach people to avoid, if that makes any sense, Patty. It, well, uh, your, how you articulate it makes sense, but the actual issue doesn't make any sense. You know, especially <laughs> when you know in other provinces there's actually a category mm-hmm. of insurance for your type of operation. Ontario in particular has one for driving instructors, and it is nowhere yep. near the types of premiums and rates paid inside facility association. Uh, I didn't hear the interview with Anthony, but I did read a, the news story on it, and one fellow, maybe it was you, had four cars in the fleet and on an average of $2,000 increase me, yeah. per vehicle. So consequently, that's a lot of money to make up over the course of a year, some $8,000 in additional insurance burden. I've always asked the same question, even when we know some 90% of cab drivers in the province are also in the facility insurance or association. Why we don't simply adjudicate someone's 
uh, driver's abstract as to how they get insurance, why isn't that the case? So if a cab driver has kept their abstract clean, whether it be from speeding or accidents or any claims, same thing for you, same thing for me, same thing for Dave Williams, that's how we should be uh, evaluated for insurance. Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It should be based on your own driving record because realistically, outside of just general demographics, that is how you determine what risk category a driver is. And, you know, one of the things that didn't make it onto the TV part of CBC's Here and Now was the segment where we discussed with Anthony about how our students actually receive a discount once they yeah. complete one of our programs. That, that's the true irony, and I, I hope that everybody listening can really let that sink in for a minute. If you come and do a course with my driving school or any other driver training accredited school here in the St. John's metro region, you are going to receive a 15% up to discount on your insurance for basically just employing the techniques that we're going to show you in the car. In the meanwhile, my rates are going to increase every year to try to teach you those techniques. doesn't make any sense. And, and that's the part that I just can't seem to get through to, uh, unfortunately, the, the, the minister of digital government, who I've really tried to, to rile up to, to address this issue and, and get the public utilities board on this topic to trigger a review, because realistically, they are the only entity, as far as I'm aware, that has the power to intervene and, and direct the insurance company that they, they have to create a separate market or, or whatever the solution might be. But the center can't hold on this issue. Yeah, well, the PUB is absolutely the entity that has that power because it's only a couple, three years ago where the big hearings were held at the PUB talking about compensation for soft tissue injuries. So that's absolutely the organization that has control over the insurance business on that front. So I don't know why they wouldn't take it up. I suppose the minister could intervene to ask the PUB to intervene, but just like everything else with the PUB, it's a quasi-judicial, arm's-length entity where we kind of do want politicians to stay out of it, because just imagine if they were involved in setting insurance premiums or hydro rates or the price of gasoline. My God, every time an election came around, we'd be paying less simply to try to buy a boat. (laughs) So we do need the PUB to do their job, and this is one of their jobs. Well, I mean, when I was faced with this kind of quandary with insurance and this astronomical hike in my rate, you know, you have to educate yourself on the topic. So, of course, the first thing that I did is I dove into the Automobile Insurance Act, which is not something I would ever recommend anybody to do on a Friday evening. There's far better things you could be doing. But right in the Automobile Insurance Act, there's several sections that are problematic. Um, There is a section in the Automobile Insurance Act, I believe it's Section 60, but don't quote me on that, that directly says that an insurer that's licensed to operate the province of Newfoundland and Labrador can charge an unapproved rate by the PUB that can be addressed at a later time to be regulated. And, of course, when I saw that section of the Automobile Insurance Act, I said, this is like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Why would you ever have that wording in there like that? In fact, it was so concerning that I spoke to my colleague about it, and we addressed it with the superintendent of insurance, and she agreed with us. She said, well, that's only in there because the Public Utilities Board has the ability under investigations by the board, which is a separate section in the Automobile Insurance Act. They can intervene and kind of counteract what might be an outlandish rate that's being charged by the industry. But... As we all know, the Public Utilities Board has made many recommendations that have not been followed through on. In fact, in that review in 2019, which you just referenced a few minutes ago, they actually recommended that 
there are many people in facility association who should not be in there, which is something my colleague Paul Prouse pointed out during the CBC interview. Why that recommendation was never followed up on is, is one of a thousand questions. Uh, the break on insurance was probably the main driver behind the fact my parents sent us all to get a formal driving instruction because when you're fresh out of the box, insurance is extremely expensive. Uh, of course. I don't know if there's a standardized rate that young drivers have to pay for formal training, whether it be with you, you guys or Young Drivers of Canada or whoever. So give us a cost comparison. For some families out there who might think, I don't think I can afford to send my young learning driver to a formal driving school. Give us an idea of what it costs and how that compares to the 15%, up to 15% break you get on your first premiums. Sure. So usually what I tell students uh, whenever we get these type of calls is, you know, you're good, if you want to do an accredited program, so that's your 25 hours of classroom and your 10 hours of in-car training, which is the minimum required by law to generate a certificate of completion, which is considered to be the insurance discount certificate, that you're going to be looking at a cost of about, we charge $750 plus tax. Now, you're going to receive up to a 15% discount on your insurance, and most students, and you know, this is, this is where we kind of get into the weeds because it's really, really hard to derive a standard rate for what an insurer is going to charge a 16, 17-year-old once they get their first year for their first license. Um, but you're going to be looking at somewhere between approximately $3,000 to $5,000 for full coverage if you're the primary operator. And given those rates, our course pretty well pays for itself within the first two years. So it, 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 for me, it's, it's not even a question of if you should do driver training, it's when should you do it. And you should do it as soon as possible. I mean, Patty, you got to do a course to use a fire extinguisher, right? Like you, you should definitely have to do a course on how to operate a motor vehicle safely because it benefits not just you monetarily, but it benefits the safety of the public in general. And one of the, uh, also one of the drivers while we sent our boys to driving school, was that, you know, to avoid any of the tensions because it can be frustrating for the new learning driver. And, you know, you don't want to be the you know, white knuckle sitting in the passenger seat and next thing you know, you're at odds. So to avoid yeah. that was part of the driver for us as well. I don't know if this is even a question that anybody can answer, but I also said this yesterday. I wonder what driving records look like for those who've had formal training versus in the Confederation Building parking lot with mom or dad. Because, you know, like some of the things that I learned, you know, look well ahead and the shoulder check and the a proper approach to uh, to emerge and being velocitized coming off the highway to enter into a residential street you know those types of off-ramp issues i wonder if, does anybody know is that ever tracked just how good quote-unquote good a driver a safer driver is after getting formal training versus not well what i can tell you and while i don't have that exact information in front of me what i can tell you is this up until fairly recently when the Liberal government decided to get rid of the taxi driver course, which I think was a big mistake, particularly with regard to trying to keep insurance costs down. Uh, that was the only opportunity I would ever really have to see a previously licensed driver. I mean, I would get drivers from all different walks of life with many different years of experience getting into the car, and it gave us an opportunity to assess their ability and then make some recommendations on how they can improve their safe driving habits before they go for their Class 4 license. And what I can tell you is this. Unfortunately, I would say 90% of what I see people doing on the roadway is incorrect or unfortunately illegal. And it's not because people are setting out to break the law. A lot of people just 
forget. They tend to forget those defensive habits. And if you're not reinforcing those habits all the time, they are going to go by the wayside. It, it, it's human nature. It does happen. So what I can tell you is as it, it, the more training you seek and, and the more training you're able to avail of, the safer a driver you're going to be. And by that very correlation, you're, you're definitely going to at least mitigate the consequences of a collision for sure. Very quick, uh, yes or no, does your organization teach people to use their indicator? Yes. <laughs> man, oh, man. That drives me. Oh, uh, 100%. Yeah, and I mean, that, that, it's so funny you say that, but communication, just in general, as, as we always inform the students, it's important to communicate your intentions to other road users on the road. That's, not only is it the law, but, but it's actual defensive driving technique. Like, they cannot read your mind. All too often, I ask a student, let's perform a left lane change when you're ready and it's safe to do so. And, of course, the first instinct for most people is they start looking over their shoulder. And I'm like, why are we not indicating? Oh, I want to see if there's somebody in my blind spot first. Well, even if there is, they don't know what you're doing. They can't read your mind. Yeah. If you put your indicator on, they may help you. In fact, you may work cooperatively together to facilitate this lane change. So I know you're just making a joke about the signal, but you're 100% right. That's, that's one of 100,000 little issues that we run into all the time that can be mitigated with proper training. Yeah, and when you pull into a parking lot, don't look for a parking space when you're still out in the roadway. Drive into the parking lot and then look for a parking space. Uh, appreciate 100%. this, Josh. Good luck. No problem. Thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. Yeah, it is sort of strange that they end up in that facility association insurance grouping. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, Kevin's in the queue to talk about pensions. And Megan has some issues getting her mother placed. I assume that means in a care home. We'll find out after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Kevin. You're on the air. Love when they put the blinker on as they're turning. My favorite, another one of my absolute faves. I was going. No, I stay well back, but other people don't. And I had one person put their blinker on after the turn. That was unique. <laughs> but anyways, what I'm calling about, I had uh, my MHA who actually did a good job, uh, or her one of her assistants did. When I I got terminal cancer and I had to retire, and they looked into different things I could get. You know, and they came up with some good ideas and some of the funding I did get. Uh, but one that was, he was sure I would get was one that when you're, my pension's only like $17,000 a year, so it's not a lot of money. Uh, but he said that there was a government program in which uh, the government, with the low income earners and that, you would get your. Uh, your medical and your dental paid, which I pay right now on my pension, right? So that was one of the things he looked into. And he got back to me and he said, I got some weird bad news. Government just changed its policy a few months ago. And what it reads now is you have to apply for that before you retire now. Now, I retired on April 1st. And he was looking into this on April 15th, and he said, you know, it, it makes no sense. If you notify them before your retirement date, they will pay that. But if you happen to start your retirement, uh, and this goes for disabled people also, by the way, uh, you don't get it. But it always was, but it is a policy they just changed. And I thought that was another one of those weird government policies no one ever notified me. I've had no way of knowing 
about this policy that government would help support you in your uh, medical expenses, right? I never thought of looking for it. Uh, pensions never mentioned it to me, nobody. So it's like as a citizen, you're out there like, wow. And even the guy with my member, who who is liberal, uh, was surprised by this policy. Felt it didn't make no sense. Well, like a lot of things with government not making much sense. You know, one of the roles, whether it be the constituency assistant or maybe just government departments in general, is to paint the very clear picture of what happens in scenario A, B, and C. So we know what we're getting ourselves into. After the fact and trying to fight the good fight and having to go back to your member, it just makes for more work, more anxiety, more frustration, when in fact we can nip some of these things in the bud, as I often say. You know, we might not get the answers we want, but answers are really quite helpful, as opposed to finding out when it's the 11th hour or after the fact or not getting any answers. Yeah, and I was a government employee, and I still didn't know about this policy. Yeah. And because with my job, we're not offered disability as something you can opt into, so I never had disability. But this was a different case of disability that government offers. So if someone applied, uh, if they were me, on March 30th, they would have got that benefit. But because we finally found out about it on April 15th, I don't apply for it. To me, it's just another one of those little loopholes. It's like when I had my, I live in row housing, and I was making at the time $32,000 a year, and I needed new roof, new doors, which you know, was expensive. So I applied to that grant the government had out last year for low ho- ho- homeowners uh, that you get, you can get subsidized on your roof and your door. And to my surprise, when it came back, you had to earn under thirty thousand, and I earned thirty-two. I thought, first of all, do they know what low income is? And secondly, you didn't advertise it that way. Oh, you put out that you were offering people this great old grant. And I even had my MHA again look into it. And, and actually, she tried really hard to get around it. You know, I'm only, she pleaded with them, I'm only $2,000 off. You know, she, she asked me, keep plying, keep trying, but we never did get it. I had to pay for it. I had leaks, right? Yeah, there's always in those rebate programs, well, generally speaking, virtually every single time, there's a means test. There's a threshold for net family income. Uh, and it's always worthwhile checking that up front, too, before you you know get a couple of quotes from anybody and go through that time and energy to make one, whether it be a roof repair or uh, home heat subsidy or you know, uh, the subsidy if you yeah. get uh, heat pumps or whatever, you know, a little bit of investigation yeah, is pretty helpful stuff. To my query with my MHA, and they kind of laughed because I think they agreed with me, was how many homeowners are people who earn under $30,000 a year? Well, I guess they establish home ownership is when you get your... If you get a mortgage approved and move into a house, you're considered a homeowner for most of those plans versus you've had your mortgage paper burn and party and you now clear and free own your own home. Uh, You know, and the low income or... Yeah, so the low income threshold is a really strange one anyway, isn't it? If it's all about how much I earn versus how much I own versus where I live, so what $30,000 represents in metros, maybe not the same in other smaller parts 
parts of the province. What $30,000 represents working and living in uh, Mount Pearl is vastly different than what it means to live in Halifax. So some of these tests are, they're flawed at best. I know why we try to apply them because someone who owns their own home and makes $150,000, I don't think we owe that person a subsidy to fix the roof. So I know why they're in place, but there's just so many moving targets and variables in that measurement. Oh, yeah. And the measure, I laughed. I said, there's not many people who earn $30,000 a year or less, who, unless you live in a cheap area, but not in the city for sure, are homeowners. Yeah. No, or, I don't imagine I many, am, but... I don't imagine I many people... I oh, cheap my. years ago, right? But anyways, anyways, that's about it. Thanks for hearing me. Anytime, Kevin. You're always welcome. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. And you know, in some of these stress tests uh, from the Canadian uh, Home Mortgage Corporation, CMHC, and the way the federal government goes about some of these stress tests for access to monies, and I know there's been some move made, but though there's so many things that contribute to the unbelievable price of a home. And again, my home is worth exactly what someone's willing to pay for it. But just look at some of the home values. I think we saw an 18% increase, if I recall correctly, the number used by the Realtors Group, an 18% increase in the price, the sale price of homes. Pretty competitive world out there these days. And, uh, you know, I guess, and this one listener yesterday is really quite cross, cross when I mentioned, you know, different cost of living issues and prices of homes in different parts of the country and what have you. It's another way where we can be an attractive option for people to move to and to live, to set up roots here in the province, because it's one of those things where, and you, you can't resist having a comparison when we talk about the price of homes in different parts of the province, you know, the competitive nature, whether it be of a healthcare worker or whoever, or an immigrant, whatever the case may be. I know we really feel like we're taxed to the hilt and the price of everything is totally getting away from us. And in large part, that's absolutely true. But even things like real estate, still half manageable. First, can you just imagine trying to set up shop in Toronto? I mean, holy smokes. I don't know how anybody can afford a home unless you are absolutely a gilded member of the Muckety Muck Club. Anyway, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, tons of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Just a couple of quick notes before we get to Megan on insurance. So probably a very good tip coming from a listener is if you're considering putting your teen into a driving school and considering what the insurance break might be, shop around the insurance before you even sign up for the driving school just to see what you can achieve regarding any percentage of savings when your young teen goes through driving school and then gets insurance. That's helpful. Also, well, yesterday when Toro, the car sharing application, launched here in the province, one particular fellow says that his insurance company says you're not allowed to rent or lease your personal vehicle in the province. When Toro says that it has nothing to do with your personal insurance, they have economic in, economical insurance as part of their arrangement. Part of their 30% goes to pay for that insurance. So we'll try to get an insurance rep on to clear up what looks like a bit of a gray area and a problem that might be brewing if you want to put your car on. Toro, let's go. Line number four, Megan, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, Megan. Hi, Patty. How are you? Great today. Thanks. How about you? I am fine, thank you. What can we talk about this morning? It says in my subject line, you have issues getting your mother placed. I was guessing that's at a care home. Tell us what's happening. 
Yes. So my mother has had a disability slash illness um, for most of my life. And I, I say it that way because she does have a disability and affects her overall health, too. And now that she's older, it's uh, taking a, a more of a toll on her overall health. And she's had a few accidents in the past six months with falls and stuff. And, you know, she really needs a lot of help at home. Um, my dad is older, too. And he is, he's finding it hard to take care of her himself. Um, all the times we've been to the hospital, you know, it's been mentioned that they need home care. And it's just been a lot of repeating the same steps over and over with with social workers and, and physio and therapists to, to try to relay that we really need a lot of help with my mom either at home or in a care home. But it's, I don't know, we've been doing the same dance for a long time, and it just seems like it's not, there hasn't been much progress made. Isn't it just as, okay, I was going to say fundamental, but obviously not. My understanding was you got a, a medical assessment, and then you were put on a list for the appropriate level of care required, whether that be in a personal care home or long-term care or acute care facility, but it's not that. Um, apparently not. You know, it all has to do with what is capable to be done within the home uh, with the help of home care workers and how much time, you know, can be allotted um, and, and what also can be subsidized based on income, um, which was mentioned before, you know, and that's all based on a, on a scale of, of a person's income. And then, um, you know, uh, basing it on the type of care, but it's it's just been very inconsistent with the assessments that keep getting done by different nurses and different doctors and social workers and every time we seem to start from scratch and um you know and every time it's you know it's like you go to the doctor and they ask what seems to be the problem and it's it's this problem every time and it just it it's getting very exhausting uh that we can't seem to get any consistent help with it um, and I guess I understand that the doctors and nurses are doing their best because everyone has a full caseload. I work in a similar field, so I understand. But it's um, it's just very difficult to watch, you know, and I'm trying to help my parents as much as I can, but I have a full-time job. Um, so, you know, and uh, it's very difficult to watch as this, this goes on and, and the rigmarole that that it is just to get someone a bit of help with with you know, some health issues in their life. Okay. Um, generally, I'm just learning on these issues when we have these types of conversations. So when we're talking about aging in place and home care hours and how many you will get, that initial assessment is done by a social worker? Uh, yes, I believe it's a team. I, I think it's a team, Patty, sorry, um, of social workers and OT. Oh, yes, and, of course. Um, occupational therapy, sorry, physiotherapy, um, that work together to to do an assessment and I know between the times that my mom has had to visit the hospital between falls um, you know they do it every time and and every time she gets sent home with a little bit of help but not a lot and then maybe a little bit more but then she goes back and um, and every time it's the same starting from scratch all over again a new social worker meeting her and, and starting again and it's you know, and um, so I'm really nervous. Uh, she had a bad fall over the weekend, and, you know, after I guess she was cleared at the hospital for the fall itself, you know, and, and she was there, Patty, and she was all banged up. 
and she really wasn't well and they said well there's nothing medically wrong and I, I had to cut her off and I said what does it look medically right you know like what is it medical about this situation she's in the emergency room and they were just going to send her home with my dad who's you know older and not well either and can't you know do it and and we're left just you know you know I don't want to use the word fighting obviously but like really just trying to you know I guess make our situation known consistently and we're happy to help share your story here on the program and I know this isn't specific to your mom but we all see the numbers, and whether it be from Stats Canada and or the report that talked about what the aging demographic will look and the percentage of the population over the age of 65 and 85 in this province, these mm-hmm. types of issues are, be go- are going to become much more commonplace, and then the stories like yours are going to be becoming, unfortunately, far too common. So until we figure this out, and we can't wait until you're having to fight the good fight on behalf of your mother and father, we've got to have processes in place that are just a little bit more efficient and understanding and compassionate and realistic because before long this is going to be so chaotic that we're going to have a system that's at the verge of breaking because we haven't prepared for what's coming and we all know it absolutely patty and that's that's what me and my my dad keep talking about because it's going to get to the point where you know he's going to be trying to help her and he's going to get hurt and then they're both going to end up needing to be put somewhere or needing to be taken care of by elsewhere and and you know, not to say certain things, but Patty, the amount of miscommunication mm-hmm. that goes on between the, the visits and the social workers and the things that we think, like we, we, we think we were told or maybe, you know, we misheard or even were told one way and then a different way the next time. Like at one point, Patty, we thought my mom was on a wait list. And that we, you know, we were we were taking her home again to be like, okay, well, this is the list, you know, we'll 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 ride this out now, and then you know, once it comes up, then we'll be able to move on. But then it turns out, oh no, she wasn't after, and now we have to start again. And it's like, how? When does this? How bad does it have to get? Really? Um, and I'm a I'm a child and youth care worker, and I see how well everything is taken care of for young people and, and youth in the system and, you know, the, the hoops that the social workers jump through and, and how uh, rigid you have to be with communication. And the difference mm-hmm. in, in that quality of work, Patty, is, is, is unreal. And I don't want to say that as quality is in a blaming way, but just maybe a way that we're just really not uh, prepared or set up for it yes i think that's the crux of the matter is the preparation i mean this is so many things affordable housing it's the numbers of people that are forecasted to have different kind of health ailments dementia and what that means for aging in place and preparation for long-term care settings i mean there's just so much to this and some people get quite cross with me when i say you know aging demographic as if there's something wrong with being a senior there's nothing wrong with being a senior i hope to be a senior one of these days of course but it's preparing government policy and actual infrastructure and protocols to accommodate the numbers of seniors today and the numbers of seniors that are forecasted to be living in the province tomorrow. There's nothing, there's no downside or insult to that. That's just trying to do what's right and pragmatic versus chaotic and expensive. Yes, absolutely, Patty, because if this is who our population is, then that's, you know, whom we have to take care of. And, you know, it's going to be to the point where the people that, you know, need to be taken care of uh, outweigh the people that can do the taking care of, if that makes any sense at all. Um, well, it does. 
I mean, it used to be that uh, people under the was it, under the age of fifty, there was six people to support every person over the age of sixty-five. It's almost flip-flopped. So it's a vastly different world now in this province. And again, my mother's a senior. Your parents are seniors. I hope to be a senior. So I hope that government acknowledges what we see coming and what the stats Mm -hmm. prove out to be, looks like to be true. I mean, there's no, no upside to fudging that type of math. So the preparation will be in all of our best interests, regardless if you have a senior in your family, regardless if you are a senior, because if it becomes more costly, that's going to trickle down or have the ripple effect that impacts everybody. So let's, you know, put our heads together and prepare for what's in front of us now and is certainly going to be much different in the years to come. So, Megan, I wish you and your family well. Would you like to say anything else? Um, no, that's about it. I mean, I'm sure I could go on forever about that and and the stuff you said about insurance and cost of living um I'm, certainly we all could but thanks for taking my call this is actually very therapeutic so thanks very much and uh, i hope other people uh realize they're not alone in this you know uh it- battle uh, it's good to have you on the program hopefully it was even just a temporary relief and wish you and your family well Thanks, Patty. Have a great day. You too, Megan. All righty. Bye-bye. All right. uh, Right now, Dave, we'll just promote uh, Percy. We'll take Percy right away. Okay, line number two. Percy, you're on the air. Uh, Yes, good morning, Patty. I was just listening to that lady. How it works is uh, the uh, doctor of the – she was mentioned about her mother. Her doctor would send a referral to the geriatric assessment unit, and a nurse would assess the patient be it a man or woman, and take it from there and assess the need to care, and they'll work in a group, and that's how it works. Yeah, and there's someone else chiming in, uh, Percy uh, Keith is his name. He says it sounds like the FACT team, counselors, occupational therapists, psychologists, peer support counselors who work together yes. for complex mental health patients, so that's in, in addition to what might be your physical ailments, right? Yeah, w- once the doctor sends the assessment to the uh, assessment unit, the nurse will do the assessment uh, go to the patient's home and do the assessment and take it from there, and then they'll work as a team. Uh, it sounds about right to me. So when I ask these questions, I'm just looking for information because I really don't know how everything in the world works. So yeah, it's sure. very helpful when you and others uh, chime in to help out me and the listener. I appreciate the yep. time. Anything else, Percy? No, I, I, I heard the lady, and I just wanted to pass that on to you. I'm glad you did. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome, sir. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take that break. When we come back, Lindo wants to talk about CRA. Hayward wants to talk about mandatory helmets for side-by-sides. And then we're speaking with you, whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Lindo. You're on the air. Yes, Patty. Good day. Good day to you. uh, Yes, sir. I was talking talking about uh, Revenue Canada. I was just wondering, like, the old day money, like, how would they collect this money, you know? How do they... Well, there's a variety of ways. So you have an outstanding balance at CRA? Yes, yes. They will come get that money come hell or high water. So whether it be like for me, they could choose to garnish my wages. They could uh, take legal action against me. They could uh, claw back whatever revenue stream I have coming from government sources. So there's a variety of ways CRA can get their money. I'm always taking phone calls with a grain of salt these days. Revenue Canada 
to my understanding, and of course I'm a taxpayer, so I've had plenty of communication with them, is they'll send you something in the mail. You'll get like a 30-day warning on filing your HST if you're a business, or you'll get a 30-day warning to pay your outstanding tax bill, or they'll offer you the opportunity to call and arrange a payment plan. They'll do it in writing before they just bug you on the telephone. That's been my experience with uh, with CRA, for whatever it is, payment plans or assessments or HST filing. So if, unless I get it in the mail, I'm not dealing with it. Yeah, I, I would simply ask uh, anyone like that. Like, I got a call the other day, which I've had repeatedly saying that they've canceled my social insurance number or something along those lines, and that's not anybody real calling. So I would always, when I get a call like that, either hang up and call them back at the toll-free 8281 CR8 number that everybody knows, or uh, say, I look forward to seeing it in the mail, and I can respond then, because then you'll have some documentation that you'll have in front of you, and it's easy to verify when something actually comes from the government to Canada and CRA, they're not mimicking that stuff in the mail, as far as I can tell. Now, some bogus emails and stuff, and certainly lots of bogus phone calls, but I, I wouldn't do anything until I got that in the mail. No, no. But he, uh, he said, I'll give you three weeks, he said, and uh, I'll call you back in three weeks. For two weeks after that, he called me back again. said the same thing, right? So... I'd be extremely hesitant to react to a phone call on that front. You would have some paper documentation from CRA. They'd like to send stuff out in the mail. Yeah. Uh, you know, I generally kind of just kind of squint when I look in the the mailbox around tax time, hoping not to see brown envelopes. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I would do that, Lindo. I'd call them. So there's the toll-free number, and the last four is 8281. I can't remember the rest of it off the top of my head, but that's the general inquiries line. I'd call them. Uh, what do you say that was? Yeah, so it's a one eight 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 or one eight hundred number. Uh, I'll get it for you quick. General inquiries. C R A. Okay. Oh, you got it. Yeah, I got it here now. Okay, it's one eight hundred. Nine five nine. Nine five nine. Eighty two eighty one. Eighty two eighty two. Eighty two eighty one. Yeah. Eighty one. Yeah, because eight thousand was awful fishy, you know. Yeah, give them a call. And they'll ask you for some basic information. You'll have to input your social insurance number, or if you had an actual account number, they'll ask you to input that. But you call that, and you'll be able to speak with someone to get it figured out. Yeah, because yes, he told me his extension number and all this, and he was assigned to my case or something, and I said, I don't know. He could be calling legitimately from CRA Collections. I don't know, but this is what I would do to ensure that I was not being uh, bilked. Uh, Give them a call and make sure you're on the right track. Okay. Okay. Thank you, sir. You're welcome, Lindo. Take good care. Me too. All right, bye-bye. Let's keep rolling here. Oh, that was a bit quick on the bottom line, number five. Good morning, Hayward Taylor. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call this morning. Happy to take your call this morning, Hayward. Are you the Hayward Taylor I know? Yes, sir. yes, I am. So, okay, the boys played ball together. Right on. Nice to talk to you, Hayward. That's right. Jack and Nick. Jack and Nick. How's Nick doing? He's doing well. He's uh, he's writing exams now at the Canadian Memorial, Memorial College for chiropractors, and uh, hopefully he'll be home on June the 1st. Fine. He's a fine volleyball player, too. That much is for sure. Yeah. Nice guy. Yeah, good kid. Uh, <laughs> 
Patty, I, the reason I call him is uh, I just want to add my voice to many, many other voices uh, with regards to mandatory use of helmets and enclosed cyber sides. Sure. I just think that uh, um, Sarah Studley, uh, Minister Studley, is, is missing something here or not getting proper voice. Uh, this, uh, these types of vehicles are, you know, they're designed to uh, protect you. Uh, you're totally enclosed. Uh, uh, you know, most of the people that are, are using them, I mean, me in particular, I bought the uh, cyberside uh, wanting to uh, be able to operate a vehicle without using a helmet. Uh, that's certainly part of the reason. And it's uh, when I've seen the new legislation come through, uh, I had some input in, uh, into that uh, in my former career in law enforcement. Uh, and we knew that there was going to be a lot of, uh, I, I use the term, blowback from the general public, that uh, they didn't want this. And uh, being a former law enforcement person, the, uh, a lot of people still come to me and, and complain about that. And, uh, you know, I, I tell them to, uh, you know, contact your member or, or go to uh, the minister themselves. And I just don't understand why this legislation is being passed when there's so much opposition for it. Um, there's other way, other ways to uh, to deal with the, the many many accidents, and, and I know they go back to the the deaths regarding the use of all-terrain vehicles, cybersides, and so on. And there's other ways to to deal with that uh, rather than make mandatory use of legislation. And I just give you an example. There would be uh, just last week in three couples, uh, we went out together for uh, rod and cybersod. We were on a woods road. The maximum speed that we would have went that time might have been 40 kilometers an hour. Had a great day, boil up, those types of things. And inside these cybersides, not all of them are equipped with uh, summer newer ones to have air conditioning, but they get warm, quite warm inside them. And now you're going to put a helmet on top of someone, and someone, and the weather is only just starting to warm up. And I, I just, uh, I'm frustrated a little bit, I guess, with the, these, uh, this decision, I, I guess, and that's why I'm calling. So what are alternatives for safety then? Because I know you can be wearing a seatbelt in an enclosed space with the roll bars and the windshield and all the rest of it. Like we spoke with Rick Nosworthy from the 11 Avalon Trailways yesterday, and he'll, he will tell us things like, well, you could be doing all you can to keep yourself safe, but without a helmet and some of the terrain that the side-by-sides would be taking on, even if you spared yourself a knock of your head against the cage, then that's another reason to wear a seatbelt. And there's lots of room for the helmet inside the, the compartment, says Mr. Noseworthy. So what, what's an option beyond the helmet to keep you from bumping your head? Well, I'll just I'll go back to, uh, you know, there is good points there. But when whenever you do some recreational activity, be it downhill skiing or whatever you want to do, I guess there's some inherent risks involved. Uh, if you're going to drive wildly uh, out of control, uh, then your risk is increased. And I would suggest a lot of the deaths uh, uh, that have happened in the past, unfortunately, there was many breaches of, of uh, existing regulations that uh, were going on. So this helmet regulation is really not going to make a difference to those to people who are breaking many regulations, be it driving uh, on, the, on roads, uh, excessive speeds, 
those those types of uh, under the influence, those types of things uh, uh, happen. And this this here legislation to me is only going to uh, um, penalise the law-abiding uh, citizen who you know just want to take their sabbasad, enjoy the country, take their time, and follow the rules. If someone's out driving uh, dangerously uh, without a helmet on, there's legislation in 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 place to deal with these people uh, for enforcement officers to be able to to, um, to reduce the risks. So uh, I, I guess that's my point is that, you know, there's always some type of risk involved. And, and you, we can get back to, uh, you know, a, a Willie's Jeep uh, or a, a Jeep uh, that people are using off-roading. You don't have to wear one. I mean, I, I've seen lots of stuff on Facebook uh, where convertibles you don't have to wear a helmet in a convertible. I mean, there's always that argument there. But, but I mean, the potential to roll over my road-worthy Jeep or my Sebring convertible vastly different than a side-by-side, though, isn't it? Absolutely true. And that's where it comes to the operator has to take uh, control of the situation. It has to understand the limits of the the, the ATV or side-by-side and, and drive responsibly. And don't penalize everybody for people that are not driving responsibly. And I'd be quite honest, I feel bad for the law enforcement officials out there now uh, who have to go out and enforce the regulations because they're the ones who want to get the full blunt out the general public, uh, uh, you know, and that's, used, that's you know, the nature of law enforcement. They're going to get the full blunt of the general public complaining about this and if they had to give them a ticket for it. It's 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 unfortunate, and I, and I don't think I think is is unnecessary. And I wish uh, Minister Studley would uh, step up and and say, you know what, we're going to make an exemption here uh, for the ATVs, uh, for the cybersides rather, enclosed cybersides that you don't have to wear a helmet. I, another thing about it is there's no, and I, I put this proposal in uh, in my former career. There's no formal plan to enforce the motorized snow vehicles and all-train vehicles legislation. There was no formal plan in that. Um, in, say, for instance, New Brunswick, they have an off-road vehicles team. So they'll go out and enforce the legislation. Um, they're focused on it, and they can enforce it and try to make a deterrent. Seemed, right now, what I see is there's a change in legislation, and the legislation basically... Um, the position of, uh, of government seems like is uh, the legislation, we're going to change the legislation and everything's going to be fixed. There's still no plan to, uh, to uh, send out a team to enforce this. It's just uh, basically the RCMP, they'll do uh, uh, lay a charge or advertise it. Uh, the provincial uh, conservation officers uh, will do it. It's just one of uh, many, many other duties that they have to do when they get a chance to do it. There's, there's no team to deal with this. And I, I think that with the existing, leg- the past legislation, with a proper uh, enforcement plan, that would have been a major help in reducing accidents uh, in the future. And uh, it seems like it's just they're not, they're not listening to the general public. And that's, that's what I find is unfortunate. Well, enforcement's always going to be the key. You know, rules, regulations, laws are only worth the paper they're printed on unless they are enforced. I know this is a bit of an oversimplification. You mentioned downhill skiing. 
I personally think you're cracked to go downhill skiing without a helmet on. And when we go skiing, you see, I don't know if I even see anybody without a helmet on these days. Uh, then they made bike, uh, riding your bicycle mandatory to wear a helmet here in the city of St. John's. So other areas where we've gone, whether it be seat belts or helmets on ATVs or any other safety measure that's been imposed by the government, enforced by the government, why is this any different? I mean, sometimes, well, sometimes, you know, we don't want to live in a, a nanny state where every time I turn my head, government's telling me what to do, what to think, how to live. But when we're, sometimes people need to be encouraged to be a bit more safer, like even, for instance, a seatbelt. Like, or am I taking it too simple here? You know, when we made seatbelts mandatory, it made the motoring public safer. And consequently, there hasn't been as many people die or seriously injured in the hospital or in the morgue because of things like seatbelts. So why would this be treated any different, Hayward? Uh, well, I, I just think that it's a different activity. Uh, Seatbelt is a new regulation, uh, is is a new requirement under the, uh, the Afro Vehicles Act. And so you're going to have to wear seatbelts, which is mandatory now on Sabicides. I don't hear any, any argument about that from uh, Sabicide users. The, the big thing that I see out of it is uh, the helmets that you have to use, uh, the heat that's involved in these sabicides, that once you're using them, the heat from the engine heats up the, the cab. Uh, you're, trying to, you're trying to keep cool. Um, you're out trying to have a good time, rea- relax, it's warm. And that just, uh, I, I just think that the legislation uh, here could be uh, a little, uh, uh, how can I say it? But basically, I, I think the legislation is overstepping, is over regulation and that's just my view, and, and that's why I call, just try to express that. And it's not only, I guess it's not only my view, because I'm hearing it from a lot of people who know the business that I used to be in, and, and it's all through Facebook and so on. And I'm not following what people are saying on Facebook, but I am following my own uh, my own views, and it's just that, uh, it's, it just seems to me that it's, it's just overreaching, and I wish that they would, uh, instead of implement, implementing that tomorrow, uh, really have another look at it. Appreciate the time, Sonny Hayward. Thanks for the call. Uh, thanks today. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Take good care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. All right. So we've heard a bunch of arguments on a variety of fronts there. And if you want to chime in on that issue or anything else, you can do it after the break. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Karen Lacey. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm doing well, and thanks for having me on the show. Um, I wanted to call in to let everybody know that tomorrow, Thursday, May 19th, is World IBD Day. So if anyone's not familiar with that, that's inflammatory bowel disease. Yeah, Crohn's and colitis. Crohn's and colitis, you got it. So people around the world come together tomorrow to celebrate and bring awareness and, you know, talk about it and support those people living with Crohn's and colitis. Yeah, we've done a couple of things together in the past. Myself and you and Sonia B. Glover. And of congratulations course. on our new political thriller. Um, so what do you want people to know? Because it means many of these diseases, th- there's a certain amount of stigma associated with this particular physical ailment. So what do you want people to know about living with Crohn's and colitis? Well, what I would like people to know is the numbers in Atlantic Canada are really high. And I know we're going through some terrible economic times now, but people are still getting diagnosed at alarming rates. 
So we still need to support those people. We need to end the stigma because, of course, it's not like if you have something wrong with your kidney. Nobody minds talking about their kidney, but, you know, people don't like to talk about their bowels. So people are living, you know, they're suffering in silence. So we want to make people know that we're here for you. We have a community here and we're here to help support you. And tomorrow there's going to be some buildings lit up across the province. I know Signal Hill, um, City Hall and Montpearl City Hall, they're all going to be lit up in support of Crohn's and colitis. And we also have something really fabulous that's happening to celebrate World IBD Day. We're having a virtual concert so people from all over the province all over canada and the world actually can tune in tickets are only 25 dollars, and they get to see people like damien follett signal hill quote the raven chris kirby and so many more so we're asking people support those who live with crohn's and colitis come on out well stay home actually and watch the show what a great thing to have on the go at the cabin if it's raining on May 24th. Sounds great. Um, sometimes I, I struggle sometimes with how to approach these types of discussions because I know somebody beyond Sonia uh, living with Crohn's and colitis, and uh, upon their initial diagnosis and how they were living with and being treated for the disease, they were just mortally embarrassed. Didn't want to go out to any of our social events anymore. Really had a hard time at work and having any discussions. Is that as common as it was for my friend? Oh, my God. It is so common. I've, I've had Crohn's myself since I'm 18. And, you know, as a young girl being diagnosed with Crohn's, that's the last thing you want to talk about. I actually preferred people thought, like, I just starved myself rather than talk about why I couldn't eat. But, you know, it's just another organ in the body. Yep. So it shouldn't be that, you know, cliche or anything taboo to talk about. And it's funny, my a friend of mine, I'll credit her for why I feel comfortable. She looked at me one time and she showed me a book and it was called Everybody Poops. And I cracked up laughing, but she said, Karen, it's true. She said, everybody does it. You guys just might have to go more than us. So, you know, she said, it's nothing to be embarrassed about. So that's what we're trying to say. Like, it's so common. I, I doubt you know anybody in Newfoundland right now who doesn't know somebody living with Crohn's or colitis or has a loved one living with Crohn's or colitis. And that's what we're trying to stop. We're trying to end the disease. So, you know, all our, all our money that we raise goes towards finding a cure. We fund research right across the country. Um, we send little kids to camp. So, you know, imagine a little 10-year-old sitting in their class with a feeding tube. They may, may look odd in their class, but we send them to a camp where they can be just like everybody else and feel comfortable. So that's why your $25 for this amazing event goes to help all these things. So it's with all the support of everybody that we're going to find a cure. How effective is the treatment? Um, you know what? Treatments are getting better and better. Um, people are understanding more the triggers. And, you know, there's a lot of good studies about why um, some people have Crohn's versus other people and what the environmental issues that are, you know, making certain areas of Canada more prone to Crohn's and colitis. So they're making great strides, but we just need to fund more research and, you know, really make a breakthrough. I mean, my, my goal is to be put out of a job because there is no Crohn's and colitis anymore, so we don't need to fundraise to find a cure. 
I always appreciate uh, you making time for the program. Nice talking to you, Karen. Yes, and you too. And if anybody wants to get tickets for the show, they can look me up on the Crohn's and Colitis Canada website. Just find me in Newfoundland and send me an email or give me a call, and I'll set you up a ticket. So thanks so much, Patty, and I look forward to talking to you soon. Happy to do it. See you, Karen. Thanks. Bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Karen Lacey, the ED at uh, Crohn's and Colitis Canada, the Newfoundland Labrador branch. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, tons of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Uh, Let's go. Line number two. Roy, you're on the air. Yes, Patty. How are you? Great today. Thanks. How about you? Not too bad, sir. Good man. A little rainy in here in Central. Here, here in town, too. Oh, very good. First time caller, old buddy. Welcome. These almost got me pissed. I had to phone you, old buddy. I had to phone you. Okay. What's your problem? <laughs> no, but uh, like you said there two callers ago, you said like seatbelts, they made that law. It, saves, it do save lives, right? Yep. Yeah, and doctors save lives, too. We got no doctors. So that, that, whose fault is that? The government knew they were going to be tired one time, sometime. Yeah, but how does the doctor conversation relate to a helmet conversation? Well, like the seatbelts, everything would make the lie. Like the masses saves lives. But now there's optional. You only got to wear it if you want to. Why can't they make do the same thing? Wear your helmet if you want to. Some people feel safe with the helmet on. I don't, so, you know what I mean? How do you feel unsafe with the helmet on? Because you can't see nothing. Like your caller said your two callers ago. It's hot in there. You can't see. You wear glasses. You steam's up. I got a fan going in mine now with no helmet. So I'm not going to see it at all because I'm not wearing it anyway. But still, you know, it's not right. But you don't have to wear... Like, I've I've worn helmets. uh, And you don't have to wear a full face helmet like I would wear on the skidoo or the sled. So there's lots of helmets out there where you can see easily. Peripheral vision not damaged at all. That's correct. And then that's more money. Go buy one. There's no argument. We don't care what you do. Just wear it. Get it and wear it. There's more money. I mean, everything has gone through the roof here in Elston, but they don't care about that. There's more money. Go get another helmet if he wants to use it. So, I mean, you know I mean? There's lies out there. Nobody says yet that's going to be enforced, right? That might never enforce that, all this talk. Like I saw before with our bike years ago, because they made it mandatory that you're not allowed to put somebody on the back seat unless it's made for two people. It's got to be a two-up-seat bike. I sold my bike, but it never, ever, nobody never ever got a ticket over it. Yeah, so well, nobody I mean, ever enforced it. Enforcement's important, obviously, but, but how do you think and feel when you read the stories of someone is killed in an ATV accident or collision or uh, tipped over or what have you, and they didn't have their helmet on? And same uh, as when you see the stories, someone drowned and they weren't wearing a life jacket. Doesn't isn't that all we need to know about just how important it is to buckle up or to put the phone down or to wear a helmet or to put on a life jacket? The fundamentals of safety uh, driver's abuse if you're up there I can take that side by side I'm not having an accident but I'm going I'm going and uh, you haven't got to wear it if you're hunting so uh, you're only going like 20 kilometers 10 kilometers if you're hunting or whatever you take a 410 take 12 gauge even don't worry I'm gonna talk keep going you know I mean it's, it's not even it's too sensible to talk about stuff and not what he makes he makes it for different people. Lie. Don't wear it. Don't take it if you're hunting. So somebody don't hunt, I always get rid of your helmet. That's too foolish to talk about. Patty. The exemption, I don't really understand, to be honest with you, uh, the exception. But, uh, again, people will do exactly as they see fit. I really don't see downside in wearing a helmet. Like even the previous caller mentioned downhill skiing and what have you. Well, I can't imagine 
going down over the mountain on my two planks without having a helmet on. You know, because it just sounds foolish. When my boys go to go skateboarding, even though they're in their 20s, I still say, I don't want to see you on the board without a helmet on. I read as part of a story here earlier this morning with a gentleman from Marystown, Taylor Jackson, who's now 27, recounting when he had a very serious head injury when he fell off his bicycle without wearing a helmet and the long road recovery and the story about the paramedic being asked to pull over and the doctor putting the drill into the man's head. So there's so many examples out there of having of not wearing a helmet and what that means for the possibility of a brain injury. I just I'm going to wear a helmet because I don't want to end up down at the Miller Center and a long road recovery just because I didn't do put on my helmet. That's just. But me, that is your choice. So why can't it be my choice not to wear because I don't want to wear? That's what I'm saying. Well, you should have a choice on this. Not to say here if you want to stop it, wear a helmet or park it. That's wrong for the government to say it. And Wendy gets down, she was on there last week, she said, we decided, we, well, all we, because somebody's telling her about the sayings, all we, she said, never, all I made is it, we. So, yeah. I know, I heard her. So, anyway, I don't agree with her, but anyway. Anyway, Patty, that's my beat for the day, old buddy. Take good care of yourself, Roy. Put on your helmet, bye. Not doing it, sir. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right, bye-bye. Okay. All right, let's keep going. Uh, line number three. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. Hard morning. Uh, pardon me? <laughs> I said you're having a difficult morning. Nah, not at all. <laughs> Listen, I had to call in. I was in the car and I was talking to Dave. And Dave says, no, you have to call. You have to speak to Patty. Uh, Patty, you, you know why, of course, when you go to the States and you see all these people riding around on motorcycles without helmets and all those kind of things. And you come to Canada and you see all these people with helmets on and you say, well, I wonder why. Well, the answer is simple. We have universal Medicare in Canada. The Americans don't. Uh, I have a side-by-side. I have a quad. I have a seven-year-old with a uh, uh, little quad. He drives around the air. We all wear our helmets. Uh, you know, I have a building full of people down there at the hub. A good many of them have had head injuries. A lot of them because they didn't wear helmets. Now, you know, my answer, uh, I put mine on. I, I, I wear a different helmet when I wear a skidoo because it's a full face mask. It's cold, there's wind. But I have a little pot helmet that I put on on the side by side. I wear glasses. I'm nearly 74 years of age. I can still see. I can still look around. I can still do everything I wanted to do if I weren't wearing a helmet. So my, my answer to all these people who don't want to wear helmets is simple. Just, you know what a Medicare office is? Go down and sign a waiver. I'm saying that if I knock my head silly and I require medical attention, I'm going to pay for it. Because that's one of the reasons why we have rules like that in this country. We have seatbelt rules and we have helmet rules and we have all those kind of rules. Is because when these crazy people go out and hit themselves, we all end up paying for it. As, do, as they do individually and their family and friends who, uh, you know, I... I I knew full well that this was going to get plenty of blowback, but I'm just not really 100% sure about the merit of some of the pushback. For me, again, if I was getting on any of these rigs or in any of these rigs, I'm more than happy to put on a helmet. I don't feel like I'm just some sort of 
compliant uh, sheep who follows the crowd. No, I make my own decision that I don't want to be uh, at the Miller Center seeing my family crushed because I've had a serious traumatic brain injury, which might alter the course of my entire life simply because I didn't put on a helmet. Like, I, I can only speak for myself. People will do exactly what they see fit, but when I evaluate whether or not I think it's a good idea, Every single time I think it's a good idea, I'm going to put on my helmet. But yeah. well, I don't know what else to say about it. I don't either. You know, if people want some examples, come down. I'll get a few people at the hub to talk to them and see if they would change their minds now and uh, why they have to have a respite worker, why they have to have somebody help them around, do all those things because they did something silly. Uh, you know, I skied probably every every. Uh, every ski hill in Europe when I was over there and never wore a helmet. And I shudder right now to thinking about it, how absolutely silly I was not to be doing it. I don't ski anymore, but uh, if I were to go skiing, the first thing I'd put on my head is uh, uh, is my helmet. When I get on my quad and go around the yard, carrying my little wagon things and picking up leaves and wood and stuff, no, I don't wear my helmet. As soon as I leave the yard, on it goes. Because I don't want to spend my time, like you said, at the Miller Center getting, getting recouped. So, you know, yeah, it, for some people it may seem like a bit of an inconvenience, as seatbelts were when we first came in with the rule, and other, other rules like that. But man, man, get over it. Get over it. It's not that much of an imposition to stick a bloody helmet on your head. And again, you don't have to wear the full face mask thing. There's lots of helmets out there that you can wear, but you don't even know to get on your head. So. I uh, I don't know why my mind went this to this uh, spot, but I remember vividly the first time it was I can't remember which American state it was in, but a motorcycle whizzed by us and the rider was not wearing a helmet. I'm thinking, where are we? What is going on here? It's one yeah. thing to make it mandatory to ride my pedal bike around town with a helmet, but quite another out zooming around on the interstate on a motorcycle with no helmet. I mean, good well, God! You know why? You know why? It's because they don't have Medicare. So if the person falls off their helmet and it needs medical attention, they have to pay for it. Or the insurance company have to pay for it. It's part of it, but even making that individual decision just seems like, my goodness, talk about taking the the completely unnecessary risk. We know how dangerous it is if you come into uh, a collision with a a vehicle and or simply dump the bike, but just imagine doing it without a helmet on. Man, oh man, I guess you're just a bit of death wish stuff going on there. It's crazy, crazy. But anyway, like you said, uh, everybody will make their own choices. And uh, that's the wonderful thing about living where we were. We could make choices, but uh, some of them are not very good. Isn't that the case? Uh, Good to have you on, Tom. Appreciate it. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Now look, I'm not, look, again, it's not up to me to tell you what to do. <laughs> I wouldn't be so foolish. Some of the safety-related laws in the country have saved lives. That's it. Like at the beginning, and I'll admit freely, I was not great at putting on my seatbelt when I was a younger driver. I also probably wasn't that great in respecting the speed limit every single time I got in the vehicle because my favorite pedal was the loud pedal. But you figure out very quickly, after a couple of tickets, a couple of close calls, that man, oh man, am I ever lucky what happened wasn't worse. So... That doesn't make me any sort of... I don't get the Order of Canada because I put on my seatbelt. I'm just saying that 
I know full well. And you see some of the pictures of some of the collisions on the highway and what have you. And unfortunately, far too often when we hear the headlines say something like someone dead, it's pretty commonplace where the person was ejected from the vehicle. And why were they ejected? Because they were wearing their seatbelt. So again, you do whatever you like. And I was in a cab not too long ago where the driver had the seatbelt done up behind him, simply to keep the bong, bong, bong from going off, as opposed to just taking off the seatbelt when you want to go into needs to get a slushy or whatever, right? All right, let's take a break. How are we doing on the phone there, Dave? Uh, when we come back, we can speak with you about whatever's on your mind, helmets or whatever else. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Someone has asked via email once again, whatever I said about uh, interprovincial trade barriers during the preamble this morning. So it's just an extension of, you know, the fact that the Prime Minister was here yesterday and there was a 30-minute window where he could meet with the Premier and you can't really discuss very serious matters in any sort of substantive way inside of 30 minutes. So I was just taking the conversation from $10 a day, daycare, healthcare transfers, into some other federal issues that we probably don't give much attention to. And one such issue is interprovincial trade barriers. There was a 1995 agreement on internal trade. It was an agreement between the provinces and the territories. It eliminated some barriers to the free movement of people, goods, and services, and investments within Canada. But the real focus was on investments and people, not on goods and services. So at this moment in time, any of the investigation that's been done into, quote-unquote, liberalizing trade barriers says that the economic optic for removing all trade barriers, which is costing Canadians billions of dollars per year, we could see an increase in uh, GDP by somewhere between, depending on the, the source that you read, 3.8% to 4.2%, an injection of 80 to $120 billion into the Canadian economy if we did away with it. The territorial protections are easy to understand if you're the premier of one province or another. You want to protect your brewery or your manufacturing plant or whatever else has been the driving motivation between protecting jobs and having local manufacturing, whether it be your distillery or making a couch or whatever else. So it's just one of those issues that is out there to be considered, but many times people don't give it much consideration because we're so used to the way things go. Remember the story, I think it was a fellow in Labrador coming back from New Brunswick and got busted uh, with X number of cases of beer in the vehicle. Just imagine that that's an actual restriction. Now, you can bring some beer and you can bring some wine, but there's a very limited amount of any of those two substances, for instance, that you can transport from province to province, which kind of is a bit silly, if you ask me. Okay. Also being asked if I saw the new Newfoundland Labrador Teacher Association's ad campaign, which I have. Uh, one person has told me that, you know, some of these issues are over the top, and not so sure why the Teachers Association is being so forceful on this front, but which I really don't get, because the different portions or factors inside the ad campaign are, number one, class size. It says class size counts. And, of course, class size does count. The very first sentence under that particular banner says, it's harder for a teacher to spot a struggling child in a crowded classroom. Absolutely. And it's not just about a struggling child either, is it? There's also the, the overachievers who also need a little bit more one-on-one -on -one attention to drive them so they don't become bored with their grade four curriculum if they're up for much more. So class size is absolutely a component. And then it's the composition of a class. Inclusive education makes all the sense in the world only if it's staffed appropriately. Can you imagine what might be the 
chaotic nature of a classroom with students of all different uh, needs and abilities, and absolutely nothing wrong with either or, but they need the supports. And currently, not all the children needing additional supports get it to the extent that they need it. And then we have the problem each September, uh, students go back to school, and last year, Johnny needed a, a, a student assistant or has a behavioral issue or what have you. They go back to school and it's not in place. So then we get off to a slow start for that particular student who can't afford to get off to a slow start. Then it goes on to say education affects our economy. Of course it does. A well-educated populace is one of the key focus areas for a long-term, sustainable, viable Newfoundland and Labrador. Of course it is. Then the next banner that they speak to is education affects our communities, which, of course, it's hard to uh, think that it's anything less than that. One of the summary statements on that front is, investing in our education system leads to more engaged and active citizens, less crime, and better social outcomes overall. Absolutely right. Even if we're looking at the work being done by the health court. And some folks have a real negative uh, view of health court and what it's going to mean in particular rural settings for health care delivery. But it's one of the key social determinants of health. Where you live, man or woman, level of education, type of job you have, the amount of money you have coming in the door, absolutely has a direct correlation with how often you are engaged with the healthcare system. So I'm not so sure how it's viewed as the NLTA is going too far because if we don't get education right, then all the other issues that we speak about are gonna become that much worse. And I've tried to make this point many times is you look at some of the polling that's done generally around election time, provincially or federally. And the same things lead the league all the time. It's the economy and taxes and it's healthcare and it's the environment and it's criminal justice and it's jobs, it's all of those things, and education somewhere well down the line. Now, I know on the federal level, not a whole lot of controls regarding education. Provincially is where that jurisdiction lies, but just imagine if education was at the very top of the list, regardless if you're in school, regardless if you have a child in school, because we all stand to benefit from a well-educated population. So if education was polling so much higher and more attention given to education, we'd have less worry about jobs and taxes and healthcare and the environment and criminal justice and anything else that people worry about or think about or are concerned with in the country. All right, we are on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, hopefully you're in the queue to talk about a matter of your choosing. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the show. Let's try line number two. Morning, Bill. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? Great, thank you. How about you? I'm good, I'm good. I got a complaint about Air Canada. Go for it. <laughs> Back in March, we booked a flight, me and my grandson, from here to Victoria. All said and done, they sent us an email back that they held our flight in Vancouver delayed by 36 hours. Now, I don't know if you know Vancouver to Victoria. Flights every half hour. We went back and we changed it. They changed, charged us $300 to change our flight. Is that legal? Well, there's a passenger bill of rights, which might not be all that uh, helpful in some fronts. But if there's 
unavoidable issues. Uh, I'm trying to just kind of recall how the language looks in that particular protective uh, piece of uh, paper. If it's through no fault of the airline's own, if it's a mechanical issue or weather-related, then they don't owe you a whole lot. But if they simply reschedule your flight, it's hard for them to blame you for the rescheduling that they rescheduled. So I don't know how that could be associated with a $300 fee. doesn't make sense. Whether or not it's legal, I don't know. I mean, they didn't charge me five cents when they changed it to give us a 36-hour delay. But we had to pay the $300 in order to get back on and not have a delay. Like I said, there's flights from Vancouver to Victoria every half hour. How can they justify a 36-hour delay? I honestly don't know, but I know that there's chaos running wild at the country's airports for a variety of reasons, staffing issues, public health questionnaires, random testing, lack of staff at Customs or CBSA. So I don't know how they can do that. And I am familiar with that very quick jaunt from uh, Vancouver to Victoria, so it seems pretty punitive to me. Yeah, I mean, it just don't make sense and then turn around and say, well, you owe us $148 each to change your tickets. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it just don't justify me them doing it. That five cents they charge when they changed it to give us that, you know, just just not a way the airlines are getting whatever they're getting. Well, the air airline industry has changed a lot over the very recent years. You know, we had one fool tries to sneak a bomb on in his sneakers and now all of a sudden we're all taking off our shoes uh and no one complains about it everyone wants to be safe when they get on an aircraft and then there was the charge for baggage and all the confusion that led to with just how people were trying to squeeze the biggest carry-on humanly possible into the same size bin you know all of these things have made it quite quite tricky as the flying public then you add in the fact that the airlines were so decimated with the pandemic and the lack of travel or the inability to travel then they are going to recover their monies and there might be some less than fair ways that they approach doing that whether it be with some of the just whopping big prices to fly period and then some of these fees that all of a sudden pop up out of nowhere which might not have happened five years ago yeah i mean I just don't know where they get the right to turn around and charge you for this. I don't know. I, I don't know about their right to do it. I mean, there's a way for you to lodge a formal complaint on mo- most everything in this country, including air travel. You can't even get an answer, buddy. Well, from Air Canada, you probably won't. Nope. You cannot get an answer. You know, bad enough to pay for all your luggage, bad enough for your delays, and this and that. But I don't think I was treated fair, that's all. Yeah, fair enough. You can either go through the Canadian Transportation Agency or the Air Passenger Protection Organization, which you can file a formal complaint. And I don't know if that's going to get you anything, but it's an option if you'd like to do it. Yep, all I can do. You know, I get the word out. Just be far beware. Always. So it's air passenger protection is the go-to home for travel-related complaints, specifically airline travel complaints. So if anyone has such a beef, and you know what's also, I think, really curious to watch, is you can be phoning and emailing one airline or another repeatedly and getting nowhere until you go on social media or Twitter or whatever people use, and you tag them. All of a sudden, they reply with, oh, send us a direct message, see if we can help you out. Sometimes the old name them and shame them gets us a, a long way down the road. Yes, you know. It, Unfortunately, it, it, it comes to that. Yeah, 
And I shall try to bill of rights. See if I can get any further. Yeah, so just Google up Air Passenger Protection Canada and it'll take you to their website. It's a long, convoluted address, so I'll let Google help you out. All right, then. Okay, Bill, you're welcome. Take good care. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's go. Line number three, say good morning to the Director of External Affairs at Memorial University Student Unions at Emily Dwyer. Good morning, Emily. You're on the air. Hi, Mr. Daly. How are you doing today? I'm great. Call me Patty, please. Okay, perfect. Um, and I think I mispronounced your name. Your name is Dyer, not Dwyer, right? Dyer. Yep, that's it. Emily Dyer. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Um, I'm coming on here today to talk about um, conversations that have been happening at MUN right now about how to proceed with the current mask mandate. Um, as the student union, we ran a few polls um, with our membership to see how they've been feeling about it. And there has been some mixed results, but there's still significant support for the mask mandate. And Muncie wants to ensure that our immunocompromised and vulnerable students have the ability to access education just like their peers. Well, before we go to what the uh, the survey is looking like or sounding like, what is the current mask rules at Memorial University for on-campus? Uh, the current mask rules at Memorial as it stands is that masks are required on campus um, unless you're eating, from what I understand. Okay. Yeah. Um, so our mandate's still in place from original pandemic mandates. And so you're going out to your members, and they're they're telling you what? Um, well, we've heard from many students that COVID has prevented them from completing their academics in the way they want it to. Um, a lot of them have been held back. A lot of them have faced issues with faculty and proceeding with their programs. And we want to make sure here at Muntsu that the mandate stays in place so everyone can access uh, education in the way they want to. You know, I have a university student at home, and there was lots of complications, whether it be some of the unknowns when you went to register for courses, not knowing uh, up front whether or not it was going to be in person in a lecture theater or remain online, and then some of the rules regarding masks and otherwise on campus. So some of it is born from confusion as much as it's born from policy. Absolutely. Um, And what Muncie was what we're standing on is that we want to make sure that our marginalized students can access an education just like people, um, just like their peers who are ready to get rid of the mask mandate. It, for me, and this is it's part of the conversation, same thing when the students go back in the K-12 system and no longer mandatory masks on the 24th of May, I've always wondered how and why the wearing of masks became such a controversy uh, because it's not really asking a whole lot of people. People can have their own individual debates about whether they work or how they work or the type of mask and all that kind of stuff. But an easy-to-understand policy that uh, makes sense and that people understand why it's in place. And then the ability for flexibility, like I guess Dr. Fitzgerald has shown with removing the mask mandate in the K-12 system. Okay, Mm -hmm. so what what else should we know about what's going on pandemic related matters on campus because and there was some virtual opportunity for uh, connection between the university and incoming students you know there's back to in-person convocation out of Grenfell so what else should we know yeah. about what's happening so right now at Munnell they are loosening cons- like restrictions for from the pandemic so um, capacity restrictions have been lifted um, we're seeing right now so this means in public common areas there's going to be a lot more people than we've seen before 
And because of this, if the mask mandate does get lifted from Mun, um, this puts our students at higher risk of not being able to complete their academics in the way they want to and not being able to participate in university in the ways they want to. So um, we are seeing right now that Mun is following some of the... Um, following the way of provincial government in K-12, and they're having discussions about this, and Munsu wants to see the mask mandate kept on for the protection of our students. What about, you know, and here we go, similar to the conversation we ha- we're having about uh, wearing helmets. If there's a significant portion of the student body that would like to see masks worn, they can still simply wear their mask. How might that not be enough? Because there was the concept of whether or not wearing my mask protects me or protects you, when in fact if all hands are wearing it, it does indeed increase the level of protection regardless of what anyone tells you. So what happens if, okay, if I want to wear a mask, I can still wear a mask? Yep, um, and... In a perfect world, this is what would happen. Everyone would still wear their masks and look out for one another. However, there are, there is dialogue and discourse I'm sure you've seen about people who are like getting tired of doing this. And um, we think that a mandate would be the best way to protect our students. And even though the, the wording of personal choice comes up, we think that a mandate is the best way to make sure that everyone can be safe. Fair enough. Uh, I have. I don't pay a whole lot of attention to it, nor am I in the mood to have any type of potentially negative interaction with someone wearing a mask or not wearing a mask or anything else. Yeah. But when the mandate was dropped in the general public sometime in March, it seemed to me, just where I go, it was only I can only talk about my own personal observations, virtually every single person in the grocery store was wearing the mask. And now since the weeks have drawn on, you see more and more people not now they can do what they want again it's not none of my business how you handle yourself like that but more and more people are dropping it so i would imagine the same social experiments will bear out on campus that month yeah um and like i mean from my personal like perspective as well depending on where i go i see like a lot of people wearing masks or a lot of people not wearing masks sure and um the union stance on this is that we just really want to protect our membership and the best way to protect our membership is to ensure that masks are it's a very small ask in the big like picture of everything because capacity has gone down in class has like resumed so to wear a mask is really not a big deal at the end of the day i appreciate making time emily you're always welcome on the show to talk about mon related matters of course. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Ellie Dyer. She's the Director of External Affairs at Munsu, Memorial University's Student Union. Okay, it's time for the newscast. Is this caller in the queue here, David? When we come back, still plenty of time to speak with you. Oh, quick shout-out to Bill. Talk about Air Canada. So I gave him the contact info for the Air Passenger Protection Group. Also, apparently... Like other issues, there's a helpful Facebook group. Like we mentioned, Newfoundland, Labrador, or NL Lost and Found the other day. People have great success there. There's a uh, site on Facebook or a page called Air Passenger Rights Canada, and there's a fellow named Gabor Lucas, who we've actually spoken to in the past. He has been quite helpful. He answers all the questions that are posed on that particular Facebook page. So, Bill, maybe you'd also want to just have a quick look on the crack book and see if you can get any, make any headway with Mr. Lewis on Air Passenger Rights, or Lucas is his name, Air Passenger Rights Canada. Time for the news. Don't go away. Your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 530 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Uh, welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Dave, you're on the air. Hi, Dave. Hello, Patty. Welcome to the show. What's on your mind, sir? How are you this morning?
morning. Grand. Thanks for asking you. That's good. Good, good, good. Good. Um, I'm calling about the uh, off-road regulations. Yep. Go right ahead. Uh, okay. You, I've heard you say many times, well, you know, like uh, when it comes to the mass mandate and that, like uh, where do people get their information and stuff like that, right? Yep. Okay. Um, okay. Safety NL is uh, involved in this about the helmets and that. And I think you're going to see a lot of, when they're involved, you're going to see a lot of courses come in, which are going to come in for uh, younger drivers and that. I got nothing against that. But I think it can go to uh, making money off it a lot of times, you know what I mean? Well, hasn't there long been an off-road operator program? Yeah, but I think it's going to get more... You know what I mean? Uh, I don't think you're going to be able to buy a ATV for, say, a youth. Uh, it's coming in within, I don't know how long, but uh, I've heard from higher ups it's coming in that, like, you, when you buy an ATV, now I think even uh, with adults, you're going to have to take it, right? But it's not mandatory now, you know what I mean? Until this rule comes in, right? Those laws. Well, I don't know what might happen, but there's the only restrictions in place regarding youth is supervision and the size of the rig, right? Right. And see, like, see, this is where I think about 75 to 80 percent of our problem is coming in. Like, you go back through the years, like, where's our statistics? They haven't come out with one statistic yet that have told us, told us how many people are getting hurt in a side-by-side with a seatbelt on. They, they won't answer that question without an helmet, right? Be fair. Like, you got, like I, call, I called back months ago, but you've got senior citizens. Like, they're coming up to different cabins, right? And, you know, they're going alongside the road to get to a woods road or whatever, right? The roads aren't, like, lucky if there's a pothole in the road. You've got senior citizens that are driving those machines, enjoying a bit of life, the little bit of life they got left, right? And, like, I didn't have a side-by-side till back a year ago, I guess, and an older guy, a senior citizen, he said to me, he said, if you buy a side-by-side, make sure either the front opens or the back or something like that, right? Now, when I bought mine, mine got a full enclosure, windshield, roof, right, which is a lot safer, but in that side-by-side in the summer, with the helmet on, you can't use it. Why not? It's too hot. Too hot. It's, it's not even livable. You're sitting on the engine paddy. You're sitting on a 700cc engine, right? It's right underneath your backside. Right? Now, you mean to tell everything in the enclosure is black. It got a full windshield. It got a back enclosure and two side doors that can zip open. Now, those two doors don't do nothing for you when you're driving along. Right? Okay. Okay. Now, you answer me another question. I'll ask you a question. What's the difference in me... And an Inuit person. God love them. 
I don't think the roll bar or the rock or the tree cares who you are, where you're from, what your uh, marital status is, whether or not you're indigenous. The head is the head is the head, and a brain injury is a brain injury. Right, but the Inuit, they, uh, they can make a rule that oversees this rule that they haven't got to wear an helmet. Says who? They can do it. Says who? I was talking to uh, Minister Studley's... Uh, it, it's in the rules. It's in the rules. They're, they can oversee from, where, you know, whatever, however their rules work. But they can get together as a group, right, and make a rule that oversees this one. Have you re- have you read the legislation? Uh, it's 19 pages. I gave it a cursory look, to be honest with you, but I have it open on my computer screen. I can very easily find uh, exemptions because it's all listed in the analysis. So uh, yeah. I'll have a read. Going to the Inuit and uh, Nuwash, uh, I don't know how to pronounce the word, but <laughs> the other group, right? Yeah, I, and I mean, I don't want to not be listening to you while I. Tr- try to read a piece of legislation, but no, 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 I have no, it open on my screen. I'll give it a, a better look. No problem yeah, there. Well, well you, you speak on it some other time, but to me, you know, they're not they're not thinking about people's heads. If they were, it would be one straight rule, and that's it. Okay. Now, just because out of the corner of my eye, I saw it. So let me just read this out loud. Uh, section 14. So... Three. Okay. In paragraph 2B, the Labrador Inuit Settlement Area, Inuk, Inuit Business, Inuit Community Government, Inuit Community Corporation, and the Nazivut Government have the same meanings as the Labrador Inuit Land Claims Agreement as signed on behalf of the Inuit of Labrador as represented by the Association, Her Majesty the Queen. Da, 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 da. So, it's not jumping off the page at me where they can set their own rules. Uh, yeah, it, it is there, though. And I was talking to Minister Studley's, one of her. Uh, lower, you know what I mean? Or yeah, one of her subordinates, sure. And, and I asked her a question. She said, yes, they can do it. If they get together and make a rule, it applies to their area, you know what I mean? So a head is a head to me. A injury is an injury. I'm no more important than a it. Yeah, and I'm not 100% sure what that has to do with my, my being safe or your being safe or Ron being safe it or anyone else. If, if a guy phones in just in and said, we're crazy for not wearing helmets, if I ends up in the hospital or that person ends up in the hospital, you know what I'm saying? I, I do. Uh, look, and it's, again, people will do exactly as they see fit. It yeah. has nothing to do with me. Uh, uh, I know I know. we've got nothing to do with you. I'm not calling and complaining. No, no, no. I'm just... I'm uh, just calling it as a complaint, right? Like, and, and a word that called in, I'll agree 100% with him. I called a police officer, another incident. I called a police officer yesterday to, like, I got an ATV besides my side-by-side, okay? The ATV, my, me and my wife have been riding on it for years. I got one of those seats put on the back, like 75% of the ATV's got, right? It's bolted on the back. Me and my wife have been riding it for years. haven't had a problem, right? Wear our helmets on the ATV, the quad. Now, those regulations are in. The regulations were in before, but they weren't enforced, okay? Okay, on my seat, it says no passengers. On the seat of the quad, no passengers, so I'm pretty sure 
that most of those quads that haven't got a factory two-up seat are only going to be made for one person now. Like, what are people going to do with all their quads? I guess they'll ride them by themselves. Well, <laughs> you know what I mean? Now, like, you use that those vehicles' common sense, right? And you're not going to have no trouble on those machines. I'll agree with wearing helmets on quads. Agree with you 100%, 150% on quads. When it comes to a side-by-side, like, how many seniors... Like, come on with some statistics. How many seniors, or say from 18 up, have been hurt in a side-by-side without an helmet on and a seatbelt, wearing a seatbelt? You're not coming out of that side-by-side with a seatbelt on. You got I don't think anyone said you were. So Well, yes, people have said, yes, you're going to come out. Uh, Rick knows already got it on there that you're going to come out and you're going to be killed. You're going to be rolled over. Now, here's Rick knows already sitting in a side-by-side with a windshield on the front of him and a pair of goggles. The windshield only comes up to less than his chin. What's going to happen if a rock comes back from a tire or a side-by-side on it of him? It's going to beat the head out of him. If you can drop your windshield like you can in a golf cart, for instance, doesn't that do away with some of the excruciating heat people are describing? You're not allowed. Your windshield got to be covering your face. Then how does Mr. Noseworthy have one that doesn't cover his face? <laughs> Look at the picture. He got it down too far. He got no, no, nothing in the back of his vehicle. He got no doors. He got no cab enclosure on the back, right? I'm not sure if there's a roof in it or not. I can't say. And then he got this little windshield is about, I'm going to say I may be wrong, but a foot high. And it's from the dash, the engine hood up. It's not covering his face at all. All he got is goggles. So you mean to tell me my full enclosure with a full windshield, like a car or truck, is, or his enclosure, his little windshield that's under his chin with a pair of goggles on, is safer or as safe as my full enclosure with a windshield? No. I, I don't mean to tell you anything. Where's this picture from? No, no, from? no, no, I'm not, you know. Right? Where's but, this picture? Uh, uh, it's on where the young girl got killed with 13-year-olds, right? She okay. was 13 year old. She got killed back in. Uh, what was on the. That's that girl from out in the ghouls? Is that that story? Uh, I think so, Patty. Uh, back in 18, I think. But okay. he got some pictures there of him driving and stuff, right? But, like, you look at the windshield. I don't even know if it's a foot high. It might be. But it's, it's well under his chin. And he's driving with a pair of goggles and a helmet on. Now, his face is completely open. To whatever's coming at him. And what's he sitting on? A quad? He's in a side-by-side. Okay. Right? Like, it doesn't make sense. Like, and, and nobody can come out with those statistics because they want to make a rule, and I can tell you what's coming in. They took care of the uh, lodges because they made the rule you can go under 20 kilometers without helmets. That's the lodges taken care of for moose hunting. Right? And you can't tell me that driving around moosing haunting is not as dangerous as driving a, just on a, on a gravel road on a side-by-side. It's worse because it's only for that side-by-side to hit a stump, grab old and four-wheel drive. It's, you know, a tree coming through, you know, 
But anyway. Okay, l l last question. And so, as someone rightfully points out, the Nazi of a government has a treaty with Canada for self-governance, so that supersedes most everything else. Okay, let's say the stats were out there. How many people got hurt in a side-by-side, side, wearing a seatbelt, uh, without a helmet? That's the question yep. you asked, was it, yep. Dave? Yep. How many yep. does it need to be? One? Ten? Listen, if Patty, like... How many people are in the hospital with cancer from smoking? How many people are out on the streets in St. John's? And in this world, like, you know, they're, they're just drugged out. They got no help. And here they are just, like, we can go after thing after thing after thing. There's nothing being fixed. All they got to do, which they're not going to be able to do because we haven't got the enforcement, and the enforcement officers are ragged out, the police officers and that, like, I can look out my window. You can't, I, yesterday, there's a young man driving around on a, on a quad, way too big for him, ball tires, blowed right up too tight, he got a helmet on, but he's on a main road, his parents aren't around him, he's not allowed to be on it, right? Like, there's no police officers down in the towns. But everyone knows enforcement is uh, a, a concern. Of course it is. But right. like, so how, how are you going to stop man, this? Oh, man, Dave, hold on. Right. What does that have <laughs> to do with things like smoking? And What's the well, analogy you're trying to draw there? Well, the guy that phoned in before, he said we were crazy for we're not wearing helmets, and we're all going to end up in the hospital. You know what I mean? With head injuries and... Like, you know, a head injury and smoking and drugs, it, it's a decision we make. You know what I mean? No, I don't. Because nicotine is one of the most addictive substances on the face of the earth. So being hooked on smoking or hooked on cocaine is nothing, not even, doesn't belong in the same paragraph, page, or book as wearing a helmet. Because we're talking about addictive, no, no, physiological addiction. Okay, I said a, it's a decision we make at first, right? Like, you know, if I if I make a decision not to wear a helmet and end up in the hospital, it's my fault. You know what I mean? Do you know where I'm coming from? Or? Not particularly, no, I don't. Because okay. being addicted to something is different. You know, no one gets addicted to wearing a helmet or not. No, no, but it's a decision you make. At the, you know what I mean? To take that drug or that first cigarette or... Agree or... Not particularly. I know the point okay. you're trying to make, but I don't think they're the okay. same thing at all. And like this person says, and I think this is right, is he says this, and I know this uh, young fella, he's been racing motorsports since the early 80s. He says, famous last words before an injury, I was just going for a quick run. Yeah. Anyway, Dave, uh, appreciate you making time for the program. I wish you and the family well, and stay in touch. You too. Okay, man, all the best. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning. Don't go away. All right, welcome back to the show. Last word this morning goes to line number two. Good morning, Phil. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the program. What's on your mind, sir? First time caller, boy. Terrific. I, I lost my wedding band. Uh-oh. On the trails in Paradise. Octagon Pond Trail. Right. Neil's Pond Trail. And going towards Topsail on the old train bed, right? How do you figure you lost your ring? You lost weight in your fingers? Yes, I did. Is that right? <laughs> yes, did big time. So, and I just noticed last night. I said, "Oh, my ring is gone." So, is it probably on the trails? Or oh, I probably could have lost it home, but I might have to check in the, everywhere home here, right? Does your partner know? She do. <laughs> <laughs> she do. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but no, I, I, 
It could be on the trails. I'm not saying for sure now, right? But uh, I put it out there, right, for, for the people that just walk on the trail, uh, Octagon Pond, Neil's Pond, and going towards Topsail, the old train bed, right? Got it. Towards Topsail. And uh, I can give you some numbers there to call. For, give us one, because people get confused with more than one. What do you got? Well, I got 7820208, and I'll settle them, all right? I'll give another one if you like. Go ahead, fire away. 730-2825. I would like to have the ring, boy. It's uh, nearly 50 years old. Oh, wow. I was going to ask you how long you're married, so you're coming up on your 50th. Yes. Well, we're coming up on our 25th. Oh, there you go. So, listen, Phil, fingers crossed that you get the ring back, folks. If you picked up a wedding band on one of the aforementioned trails... Give it back to Phil. He needs it back. Uh, it could be a life or death situation. <laughs> 7820208 or 7302825. Fingers crossed, Phil. Thank you, Betty. Thank you very much. You're welcome, sir. All the best. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. We are indeed out of time, but big thanks to the folks who support the program, all of the callers, listeners, emailers, tweeters. You are all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk again in the morning. Bye-bye.